Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the uh, journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Harry Broadman. Harry is an old friend, and we were fortunate to work together on a project uh, that we were doing here out of the University of Toronto on uh, China's accession to the WTO. What I hope to do today in dialogue with uh, Harry is to explore with Harry uh, the current U.S.-China relationship and also explore with Harry uh, the uh, state of politics in China under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Most particularly, I want to explore with Harry the current U.S.-China tension over trade and the effort by the current administration to change the trade relationship uh, between uh, the United States and China. Harry's had a varied career, as I mentioned. He worked in the World Bank in a whole variety of settings in emerging markets. Uh, prior to that, he had worked in the White House as Chief of Staff of the President's Council on economic advisors, and then as United States Assistant Trade Representative, he was very involved in the crafting of the trade legislation for the United States in the late 1980s and 90s. His most recent book is Africa Silk Road, China and India's New Economic Frontier. So let's join uh, Harry in the studio as we discuss the current state of the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, welcome, Harry. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today uh, at, uh, at Global Summetry. Well, thank you very much, Alan. It's delighted, I'm delighted to be here and to speak with you again. Okay. Uh, so we're really, we're kind of focused on the U.S.-China relationship. You've done a lot of work in China, a lot of research. Um, you've, you've been rather critical of, of the state and the direction of the political economy of China, in particular the trajectory of the Chinese economy, which is of course uh, generally described as a socialist market economy. What are the features for you that raise the threat to Chinese economic and political progress? Yeah, so, I, so I, I've actually been, when you say critical, I've been critical in the sense that I, I have been an advisor of the government, you know, since 1993, and I, I am trying to help them sort of figure out uh, how to deal with some of the problems and some of the contradictions that they're facing, in large part because of this oxymoron model of a, quote, <laughs> socialist market unquote economy. economy yeah um, but I you know I but let me let me be very clear I I am very impressed with the Chinese element of reform and innovation and particularly its experimentation and a lot of advanced countries can learn a great deal from the process of reform that particularly large countries the process of reform that that China has undertaken mm -hmm. I think I think you know They've obviously, the Chinese have obviously grown the economy tremendously since the reform period began in, in 78. Um, but they're, they're running out of room because, in essence, 
uh, as I say, there, there's, a, there's a fundamental contradiction where um, you want to have communism or socialism, but you also want to have market principles and rules, and those two things, unless someone has invented a different way of threading them together, I don't see how they work very well. And so the Chinese economy, you know, the domestic economy is very large, and so they've been able, frankly, to uh, pedal along and, and grow rapidly, uh, generally, if you believe the numbers, which mm-hmm. we can return to later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, they're catching up with themselves, and some of the core problems of the economy really are, are coming home to roost at this point, particularly, I think, the the nexus between the state-owned enterprises, which still dominate the economy. There was a period three or four or five years ago when some of my well-known friends were writing that the private sector was overtaking the, the growth of the state sector. But on the other hand, uh, not only in the, in the enterprise sector, but in the banking sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are also the four major banks are state-owned. And so you've got, you know, blunted incentives, um, you know, unfortunately by design, which creates a, a vicious cycle. And you can pedal that bicycle for just so long. And as, as China has become more and more globalized and integrated with the world economy, uh, that bicycle is becoming more and more tipsy. Okay. And let's try to unpack a little bit of that. In 2015, you wrote in one of your pieces, your articles, there is a palpable and deepening erosion among the Chinese population in Beijing's credibility and economic stewardship. And so the question is, what did you mean when you wrote that? And what are the, you know, what are the consequences today of that, uh, as you call it, deepening erosion? Yeah, so I, well, I think, you know, in particular, I think what, what set off, um, I think, or began to deepen, I think, the, the, the concern among the domestic population of the reform program was that as they began, the government began to try to tighten the screws on, on certain state of enterprises, particularly in the hinterland and in the regions, mm-hmm. um, along, along, with, along with, frankly, uh, you know, troublesome corruption and, and ill-gotten gains, which the newspapers have written a lot about, workers were thrown out of work. Uh, companies, or businesses, I should say, you know, began to close. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion that uh, the government would take care of everybody from from cradle to grave. I think began to be questioned, and and I think in, and that was particularly punctuated, uh, you know, a couple of years later when the Chinese stock market, in quotes again, uh, crashed or began to fall, and the you know the grandmothers and many people who invest in quotes in the stock market in in China. Uh, got very upset because they lost money, and they really, it was it was a, a t- tremendous metaphor for exactly what I'm talking about. That there really is not a market there. If there's a market, that means you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and the the government was very concerned about people's unhappiness about the fall in the stock market, mm-hmm. and marched in and made people whole again, and that only I think has fed. The concern on the, on the part of the domestic population that 
you know, there, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. And if the government, you know, continues to step in, that is only creates more and more of a moral hazard. And so I think, I think there's a lot of, you know, uncertainty among the population. Of course, it's a large economy, a large country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a very, very wealthy class. There's a huge, very poor class. And then there's a very large middle class. So I'm not, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. But I think, you know, in contrast to say 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, I think people are paying attention, more and more of the Chinese population are paying attention as to the continued success of, of, the, of the program, of the, of the reform program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's look at the other side of it, because you did raise this question of the state-owned enterprise, and as you call it, the SOBs, the state-owned banks. And <clears throat> recently, again, you wrote, ultimately, however, an economy increasingly reliant on mammoth state-owned enterprises that have always hemorrhaged losses, only to be band-aided by four equally large state-owned banks pretending to lend money to the state-owned enterprises, while the state-owned enterprises make believe to pay back the loans will seize up. The rub is that the state-owned enterprises and the state-owned banks are at the core of the of the Communist Party's reason for being. Something will have to give at some point. So, so what do you think is then both the heart of this problem, which I think you've pretty much addressed, but what what do you do? What does the current leadership do? Well, I think I think they've got to make some very tough decisions, and I think you know they're they're painted in a corner. On the one hand, um, as you as you as you quoted me, the raison d'etre of the party ultimately is control over the backbone of the economy, which are mm-hmm. the state-owned enterprises and the state-owned banks. Without those, it's not clear to me what power base the the Communist Party has. So there's 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 you know they're in a, they're in a in a sandwich of both economic reform and political reform. It's the age-old sort of debate that was always the contest between Russia and China. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the I think the I think the problem and and how it's going to have to give is will in fact. The Communist Party uh, allow for you know pr- privatization, bona fide privatization of the enterprises. Uh, if they do that, of course, that means that they're they're ceding control over part of of the economy, and in particular, uh, providing these cradle to grave uh, tentacles into society. And once they, if they lose those tentacles, they therefore fear that there's going to be instability among the population because they don't have control over them mm-hmm. and so they're they're really they're really you know caught between a rock and a hard place and so they they face some very very stark choices both on the one hand political and on the other hand economic so uh, if you you know thinking about you know what what the current leadership has said one of the things they've talked about of course is uh, the the party's interest and promotion of things like uh, China 2025 and AI and so forth. So if they were to do what you're suggesting, wouldn't that sacrifice their what appears to be their industrial strategy of moving up the chain on, on the technology of tomorrow? 
Yeah, I think I well, I think that, so. There are two things. I think one is the track record that the Chinese have in fulfilling big reform ideas, mm-hmm. um, which I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. They've, as I said in the very beginning, they've done a marvelous job on incremental reforms and experimentation. Uh, but I think you know wholesale upheaval uh, and you know lots of new investment uh, that is going to put you know into the trash bin the state of enterprises and the state of banks I think that's that's a tall order for them mm-hmm. um, so I think their 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 heart is in the right place but the question is whether or not they can they can actually make it happen without sacrificing control over the population and stability of the economy and of course you know underlying all of this anxiety is the outflow of chinese wealth to other economies which we can see a lot of right and you know pe- people are are talking with their wallets <laughs> and you know the, the government doesn't have a lot of time uh, in terms of in terms of sort of the, the most savvy and well-to-do of the Chinese population to come through with some of these programs, but I I see you know I, I've watched many 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 programs that the Chinese have announced over the last thirty years that have great names and great ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of some of which have been implemented, but but many of which ultimately have fallen by the wayside, um, and now. You know, you can't escape the fact that we we have a person at the very top of of the government and the party who obviously has you know exercised tremendous control, and you know it's, it's not clear what the checks and balances are on him, mm-hmm. other than his worry that the population is is going to become unstable. So, so two two aspects I want to just follow up with you on one. Um, so I take it you don't, I mean, you don't agree with our good colleague Nick Lardy at Peterson when he wrote Markets Over Mao, where he saw, uh, going back a little ways, but he saw that uh, what, we, what you had there was a growing vibrancy of the market, the private sector, and, a, you know, and, and contr- not control, but dominance there as opposed to the state-owned enterprise sector. I take it you don't buy that view. Well, let me tell you two things. One, uh, I challenged Nick, who, who, I, who I know very, very well, <laughs> when that book came out. Yeah. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm not sure that you're not confusing sort of stocks and flows. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the cumulative position of some of these firms, and and the sort of the flow of of the water coming into the bathtub because the bath most of the water in the bathtub are still standard enterprises. I see. That's number one. So I think I think there I think there's I think there's an analytical challenge there, but I think more importantly, uh, he's written more recently, mm-hmm. within the last three or four months, that you know what. The state is becoming more and more dominant in the economy. Okay. Um, so he's so backed off that uh, that position. He well, you you you, you can ask him, but his yeah. most recent writings certainly, uh, you know, acknowledge the numbers at least that, that I've always focused on, mm-hmm. um, and, and cognizant, as I say, of of the cumulative uh, state 
ownership in the economy. And okay. yeah, you know, the, 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 the non-state sector, which is a euphemism for the private sector, right. certainly has grown relatively rapidly in China, but it's also been reserved by the state to only populate certain sectors, you know, light manufacturing, right. textiles, retail and consumer. You so won't find... Not telecom. You know, pri- <laughs> you, well, you won't find them in the chemical industry, yeah. in, the, in, the, in yeah. the petroleum industry. So, um, they, you know, they've, they've been allowed to, to grow, you know, in, in a circumscribed area. And I think that's, that's largely what Nick was looking at. But I think the, the hypothesis, I'll put it this way, that, you know, China was, was about to turn the corner with private enterprise or non-state enterprises overtaking uh, the, the, the cumulative flavor of the type of enterprise running the economy. I think that, that has not come to pass. Mm-hmm. And unless I'm wrong, unless there's significant fundamental change, I don't think it will. Okay. And I, I would presume then you'd see uh, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, as simply an extension than likely of the of the state-owned enterprise uh, uh, dominance in 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 the Chinese economy. Yeah, you know it's interesting. So that that's a, that's another initiative which I which I have in fact been fairly critical of, and yeah. mm-hmm. I pre- I predicted uh, probably a year and a half ago uh, in one of my Forbes columns that in fact the Belt Road Initiative, first and foremost, is there to serve the state of enterprises mm-hmm. as a way of exporting their excess capacity. Right. But I think, you know, more importantly, uh, the point I made, and I still believe very strongly, is that unlike the, the magic that China has shown in terms of its innovation and in doing incremental change, the Belt Road Initiative is largely a one, one fell swoop across you know many many countries all at one time and that in fact runs counter to the chinese experimentation the heart of how they have reformed and and i predicted then uh... and and as an economist it's rare but occasionally one what one is one is i think it you know perhaps correct that there was going to be a lot of antagonism by certain countries in which this Belt Road Initiative was going to be lending money in order to build facilities. And in fact, now you are seeing this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka and some other countries. And all this is on top of, you know, a topic which, which is very close to my heart is, you know, how the Chinese have invested in Africa. Right. And I think, I think they've, I think they've actually done tremendously in helping the Africans, but you got to walk a fine line uh, between, you know, your zeal for investment and, on the other hand, sort of respecting local uh, customs and, and, and local initiative. And I think what is happening now with the Belt Road initiative is, is uh, you know, lessons are being taken from, from the way the Africans, again, painting with a broad brush, right. unfortunately, but the way that the Africans view the Chinese investment in, in the, on their continent. Okay. Let me, let me go back to a subject that you did raise earlier, and that is uh, the concern of the uh, growing authoritarian stance of the current president of China, uh, chairman as well, Xi Jinping. Uh, you uh, noted uh, in a recent, uh, in the recent public criticism 
which is, as you're perfectly aware, quite unusual of the statements by uh, the scholar, the constitutional scholar at uh, Tsinghua University, Xu uh, Zhanggrun, uh, where he expressed um, the, openly the totalitarian tendencies of Xi. Uh, and you, you added in one of your Forbes columns that many Chinese I know will say privately that they are deeply worried about Xi's, uh, 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 Xi Jinping's power grab. So uh, how much of a threat is that uh, in your estimation? Uh, Harry, uh, the uh, you know the growing kind of centralization, the end of the uh, term limits, apparently, et cetera, et cetera, for the for the leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I think um, I think it's going to take a great deal of skill for she to 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 maneuver around this, and I'm not sure it was that was the wisest course to take. Now. Obviously, certain political leaders are very ambitious and, and want to do things, but they also may live in an ivory tower and not realize that that may well be may well be the seeds to their undoing. And so, when you've when you've got people, at least the, the folks who I know in China, uh, you know, who who tend to be deep into the policy, very experienced both in the private sector and in government. You know, wondering why she is doing this. If, in fact, this is a strategy to preserve, in fact, the reform progress, and they 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 question whether or not you can you can essentially, uh, like China writ large, that she wants to have his cake and eat it too, and that becomes very difficult. So I think they worry. That that rather than becoming more democratic in essence, and to to use the the overused word, broaden the ownership of reforms mm-hmm. uh, by by you know seizing you know more control over the apparatus. She may be going, and and I think many people in China, at least who I know, believe is going in the wrong direction, and that that. That dialectic, in fact, may uh, prove to be you know, too much of a liability. And, and again, if she, in my view, were smart, uh, he and, and, and frankly even more Machiavellian uh, than, than he is, he would surround himself with people where, if things go wrong, you know, you can cast them aside. But now, if he's essentially grabbed power to himself. Uh, you know the, the 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 flip side of that is if you don't have anybody that is with you, uh, then you're you're holding you know you're holding the bag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now let's turn to kind of the closer uh, U.S.-China uh, situation. You know, our good friend uh, President Trump comes along. He accuses China of dramatically taking advantage of the United States, particularly in. The, in terms of the global economy and the global uh, trading system. He, he points, obviously, to the serious bilateral trade imbalance uh, with China on the part of the United States, um, the accusation that uh, the use of the renminbi in order to maintain an advantage um, in trade with the United States, and then adds in uh, the theft of intellectual property from American companies, 
uh, and, and forced transfer uh, of intellectual property. I mean, does Trump have a point, or uh, what's the real situation here? Well, I think I think I think his his and like many Americans, his his finger on the notion that there's a problem with the way that China is conducting itself is absolutely correct. I think the problem is that his diagnosis is extraordinarily misguided and, and, and superficial. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that you've obviously, you know, put on the table, but you know I, you know, let me let me just tick off a couple of things that I think are, are real challenges for this country, the US and and frankly, it shouldn't be just the U.S., it should be a coalition of WTO partners mm-hmm. to deal with these problems, which is bilateral deficits to any, any economist worth his or her own salt really is, is relatively meaningless, uh, right. particularly in a globalized economy. It's sure. like Trump, Trump is living in, in 1818 rather than 2018. <laughs> so the, the, fet, the fetish with bilateral deficits is, is dangerous. Secondly the notion that you want to punish the Chinese or reduce those deficits through tariffs is is almost an oxymoron in the sense that if you believe that China in fact is is on the margin a non-market economy where prices in fact are not being set by market forces lopping on a tax i.e. a tariff on top of the foundation the price which is artificially set is not going to get you very far in terms of either lowering lowering the deficit, which is Trump's goal, or modifying conduct. So there's a lot of problems that Trump has now dusted up, and and with the Chinese, let alone U.S. businesses, not only in the United States who use imported Chinese products as inputs, but also U.S. companies who are manufacturing in China, who would otherwise export back to the U.S., are now saying, you know, we may well move our, our facilities out of China uh, and, let's say, move them to Malaysia. Mm-hmm. We're still going to export. Uh, you know, we, we may well export back to the U.S. because Malaysia doesn't face a, you know, a, a tariff from the U.S., but... We, we reserve the right as a multinational corporation to export wherever we want. Now, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of problems here that I think Trump, Trump is facing. The, the other element I do want to put on the table, however, is this core question about Chinese conduct at home, particularly with respect to intellectual property and technology transfer. And this, and this goes to the heart, I think, of... China's accession agreement to the WTO in 2000, mm-hmm. where it committed to undertake certain reforms that are market reinforcing, uh, and for example, with respect to the transfer of technology, uh, the respect for intellectual property. So it's it's clearly not subscribed or enacted the reforms that it said it would do in. 17 years ago, but it takes two to tango. And I think the untold story, which I've tried to tell a little bit, is the U.S. firms or other foreign investors who have willingly surrendered their technology to the Chinese as a price Mm -hmm. for investing in the economy, 
you know, they're not blameless either. And, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of the way that, that I advise clients with respect to corruption, whether it's at home or in emerging markets, is, you know what, you just say no. And the problem is, is that U.S. companies and, and European companies, when the Chinese said, you know what, you want to invest here, here are the rules. Those rules happen to contravene the WTO. But, you know, businesses can just as well say, you know what, we're not doing it this way. Mm. And but the problem is, is that the the Chinese, because it's such a large market, you know, exercise leverage. But but I think the point that needs to be made, which has not been made, I think, strong enough, is that it does take two to tango. And had you know, do the thought experiment, had the U had U.S. firms, the GEs of the world, or the Siemens of the world, when investing in China and Beijing says. You know, if you want to put up that factory, here's the deal with respect to who's going to protect your intellectual property, how much of your technology you've got to share with Chinese partners. If the Siemens and the GEs of the world said, no, we're not doing it that way. I think there would be a different story to tell today. I'm not sure that it would be 100% different, but it would be very different. But, you know, they basically have, have fed the monster and that's in part what we're living with now. And those are the same kinds of firms who are obviously now being injured by the tariffs. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a classic public policy problem when you have multinational corporations, uh, but you know, where their incentive structures are, are distorted. And had they behaved differently, I think we would be in a, in a, in a different situation today than, than we're, when we're currently facing. So I take it, <clears throat> Harry, that, that part of the reason you suggested uh, that the Washington tariffs were a sideshow is exactly that. It really, really relates to corporate behavior, uh, corporate arrangements, uh, uh, and uh, I presume as well the supply chains and, and where they set up and how they operate so that that's the real um, that's the real heart of the China US relationship and others as well and that tariffs really don't do very much on that yeah and I think you know I, you know I, I think I think what the Chinese really fear I think you know I, I think tariffs are, are a nuisance for them um, but what they really fear and I've and I've written about this, what they really fear is, you know, going back to their accession agreement mm -hmm. and basically a coalition of, of countries, big trading partners of the WTO saying, you know what, forget about the tariffs. You have not implemented the commitments that you signed up to enact. And so there, there the Chinese are, uh, I don't want to say are quite happy to live with the tariffs, but if the trade-off is dealing with tariffs and dealing with a bilateral trading partner under the leadership of President Trump and Peter Navarro and yeah. Bob Lighthizer and Stephen Mnuchin, they say, you know what, we, we, we're preferred this way. This, this is much better for us to deal than a coalition of very big trading partners coming to us and saying, you know what, you're going to have to renegotiate your accession. And you know what, if you want to have the economy that is the way that you want it now, that's fine, but you can't be in the WTO. Hmm. And I think that's, that's where I think the Chinese are, are 
chuckling a little bit and think the tariff battles are a sideshow. What they really fear is someone really going for the jugular. And they're, they're very blessed by the fact that Mr. Trump does not understand that. And nor, nor do anyone, nor does anyone who surrounds him that I can find understands that both substantively, strategically, or tactically. Hmm. So, so I noticed, for instance, that the U.S. and China had uh, restarted discussions with uh, Commerce Vice Minister Wang Shouwen and uh, uh, our friend from the Treasury Department, uh, David Malpass, um, uh, are starting a negotiation. You view this as really, of you know, in a way, a distraction that this doesn't. This doesn't deal with the heart of the problem as you see it, which which would, in fact, be built on a multilateral uh, initiative as against um, as against uh, China. Well, there are two things. One, I think, you know, whether it's Malpass or whether it's Mnuchin or whether it's Trump himself, right. the fact that it's, the fact that they're still talking about tariffs right. is fine from the Chinese perspective. Right. They have clearly ratcheted this down. Both sides have ratcheted this down to give each of them a little time to think if the other will cool off. Uh, and, the, and Trump is not about to cool off. <laughs> so I think rather, rather than say, you know what, we're not going to have talks uh, and walk away, I think the calculation in the White House was made, well, we'll just we'll give it to, a, to an undersecretary rather than the secretary or, or, or the president. Right. But that's a, you know, the, so they want to they keep the discussions going, but they're still doing it in a bilateral context. And that, you know, the fact that they're not approaching this in a multilateral fashion or plurilateral fashion, that's still the basic point that has not been uh, thought about at all seriously by the United States. And that's what the Chinese fear most. Well, I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Because, in effect, uh, you know, President Trump, that's the last thing he thinks about is a multilateral initiatives, whether it's on the economic front, the trade front, or the security front. So he's not very likely to promote a, the kind of initiative that you're talking about. No, I think, and I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, there, there have been, you know, you know, several of us who have been pretty vocal about this, right? Um, and we don't seem to be able to penetrate him or any of the people with whom he has surrounded him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, none of which, other than other than Bob Lighthizer, sort of un understands at least substantively this issue, or if they do understand it, they're not willing to take on the president, right? And, and and don't forget, I mean, I think, you know, the, the the reason why Trump has a fetish with with bilateralism comes from the fact that he cut his teeth doing real estate deals in New York, right. and real estate deals, you know, almost by definition are bilateral transactions. Right. And so he doesn't he doesn't understand the the multilateral practice, but more importantly, I you know he's not I don't think he's comfortable dealing with, uh, you know, a multitude of parties to try to have a conversation or a negotiation. That, that is just not in his past. 
mm-hmm. and he he you know at, at his age he's not going to change, and no one is going to force him to change. And so I think, you know, in this situation, I think the Chinese are extraordinarily fortunate uh, that they have someone like Trump in the White House, that they don't, for the moment, you know, have to fear uh, that he's going to change his tactic. Nor and nor, frankly, do you see. The, the Europeans or the Australians or the Japanese or others uh, who don't care for Trump either saying to him, Donald, listen, why don't we do this together? Mm-hmm. Because they got other fish to fry with him on which they're not getting along as well. So I think the Chinese, frankly, you know, are, are sitting fat, <laughs> uh, if I can use that expression, yeah. right now, yeah. g- g- you know, given who's in the White House. Really? Now, uh, it, 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 you may have consequences, however, because there increasingly are reports out of China <clears throat> that the leadership, and this may be uh, again a sideshow that they're you know they're playing this, um, that they no longer view uh, you know the, this tariff discussion uh, in in kind of narrow trade terms but part of a broader strategy on the part of this current administration to contain China's ascent as a global power. This is not the first time we've heard about Chinese leadership and officials believing that the efforts of the United States are, is a, you know, primarily a containment strategy. So it has potentially spillover effects on the relationship between the U.S. and China. Is that not right? No, no, absolutely. But I think, I, but I think, I think, you know, the military threat, uh, the foreign policy threat, is one thing. Right. Um, and I, and I think, I think the note, and I'm not an expert in 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 those fields, but the notion that um, the world is wary, uh, and the U.S. in particular is wary about the geostrategic and military ambitions of the China Chinese is probably not unfounded. But I don't think uh, that the Chinese, frankly, need to worry that the current strategy with respect to trade is at all uh, commingled with the military strategy or the foreign policy strategy of the United States. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I've argued this before, I think what you're also hearing going on in Beijing uh, certainly in the last several weeks, is the worry that the public pronouncements by the officials and at, and, and at local gatherings is the worry that, gee, this is going to cut growth of the Chinese economy. I see. And, and, and in fact, uh, you will find uh, Xi and you will find others blaming the United States uh, very conveniently mm-hmm. for if the numbers do not turn out to be as strong as forecasted, which is a miracle when they don't come in at the same death point as forecasted early, they will use the U.S. as a scapegoat for slowing growth. But as I've, as I've argued at, at the beginning, this growth slowdown has little to do mm-hmm. with the United States. It has little to do with trade. But how convenient... How convenient, this is a Christmas present for Mr. Xi by Mr. Trump, how convenient to find a, a th- third party 
to blame on why the Chinese economy might become soft. Well, it's been it's been becoming soft now for many years, increasingly. Right. But you know, if if you didn't have this trade tango, that would be much more pressure on Xi. But he's building up, and you can see this now in the press, in the Chinese press. He is building up, um, you know, worries among the leadership and among the Chinese population uh, with the building of nationalism that, hey, if our economy is not doing well, it's not because of me, she says, right. as, an ex, as an XI, uh, but it's, it's because of the United States. So, again, I think um, you know, the, the Chinese are, are, will say, yes, this is part of a broader strategy of the U.S. to try to contain us. Right. But Again, that that economic connection with with geostrategic, I think, is they know, they know, the Chinese know that what's happening economically is not going to hem them in at all, militarily or geostrategically. Now, if if, if the Pentagon gets involved, that's a very different story, but that's not where we are at this point. Uh, sorry, what do you mean by if the Pentagon gets involved? No, I mean if 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 there was if there was a separate initiative that had nothing to do with trade, let's say for the sake of argument, and I'm out of my element here, but let's say, you know, uh, uh, the 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 defense secretary at Trump's urging, or the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, you know, let's uh, let's cozy up to Taiwan and let's do something with the South China Sea Islands now. I see. You know, that's that's a very different matter, and that I think you will provoke the Chinese. I see. Uh, but I think the economic side of the equation is, I, I think it's a gift to them. Hmm. So, so um, you know, <clears throat> how do you foresee, you know, uh, Xi and, and, and President Trump are supposed to meet in November. I mean, on what basis do they kind of get together uh, in November if we've got this trade sideshow, if we've God, the Chinese government, which is increasingly uh, wary um, uh, of of uh, the Chinese economy, where it's growing, and you know these trade initiatives trying to contain uh, the United States. You know, what's the state of the relationship if these two leaders get together in November, or maybe they don't? Well, first of all, they may not. But more importantly, uh, and you know this as well as I, that uh, November is a, is years and years away in real time, <laughs> and uh, you know I that, I think that is that is that is the least of either side's worry uh, at this point about what if anything do they say, and you know it, it could be I, I would place even money on she saying there's no point in meeting or Trump saying there's no point in meeting both because both are going to you know we're now at the level of two boys in the sandbox right and you got two you know who are you know one 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 uh you know ha has real power uh and one wishes he had power and pretends he has power uh but they're both they're both actually very similar sitting in a sandbox but throwing sand at each other and I would not be surprised again this is a, November is a long way away okay but you know it, it could well be that that meeting just does not take place doesn't take place well kind of as a as a final thought from you 
um, Harry. I mean, uh, do you see, uh, you know, is there real prospects or for, I mean, we, we've heard from Chinese leadership about reform and reform of the economy for now several decades, right? And when they, whenever they kind of come up to reform, they look at it and it's kind of like looking into the abyss and they back away. Is there, is there much prospect that we're likely to see a, a kind of fundamental turn on the part of this current leadership towards a more serious kind of decentralization and market, marketization uh, of the Chinese economy or is there just a lot of talk? Uh, I mean, I, I think I think it's still a lot of talk, and I think I think the only way that the Chinese are going to alter essentially the the the, the steady course that they've been on, and I again I don't want to paint a picture that there's not been reforms going on. There have been, right? Um, but they're but they're 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 quite incremental. But the notion that will they actually get all of a sudden you know there'll be a, a huge regime change in policy. The only way that that will come about is if there is a rupture domestically, uh, whether it could be a bank run, whether it's political upheaval, you know, in, in a particular province uh, because factory workers, uh, or whether, you know, there's a problem with the, the value of, of the equity markets in, in China. I mean, there, there would have to be a, an event I believe that would get the attention of Xi, but absent absent an event, and, and you know all those kinds of events are certainly quite plausible. It's one one could argue it's just a question of time because every economy and every country goes through these things. Is it's not it's not going to be the case that Xi autonomously is going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I've seen the light. <laughs> we really now need to get really serious about marketization, privatize these state-owned firms, let them go. Um, you know, we privatize the banks, clear out all the all the dead debt. Um, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. But more importantly, uh, it's a very they've built they've knitted themselves an incredibly complex Rube Goldberg economy, mm-hmm. and so even if they wanted to. Even if they wanted to turn on a dime, it would not be easy to unwind it. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you, Harry, for the insights, uh, both in terms of the U.S.-China, but particularly the China, uh, you know, uh, politics and and the current state of uh, of the economic uh, uh, economic structure. It's a pleasure to have this discussion with you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.